Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to direct your attention to a podcast series that we're featuring. It was produced by Brian Collins, and it's called A Very Square Peg. And it's about a fellow named Robert Eisler. You may never have heard of Robert Eisler. He was an Austrian-Jewish polymath, and he made contributions to a remarkable number of fields, including mythology and comparative religion, gospels, monetary policy, art history, history of science, psychoanalysis, politics, astrology, the history of currency, and value theory. He lectured all over the place. He spent 15 months in Dachau and Buchenwald, and he was something of a character. If you've ever heard S-Town, the podcast series S-Town, he reminds me a little bit of the figure that is featured in S-Town. He really did just about everything, and his life is absolutely fascinating. Brian's done a great job of putting together what we know about Eisler, and the series itself is really quite remarkably interesting. I hope that you listen to it. It's easy to listen to all nine episodes of A Very Square Peg. It's available on all the major podcast apps, and that includes Apple Podcasts and Spotify and Stitcher and Google Podcasts. If you go to the NBN website, you'll see a large icon that says A Very Square Peg. If you click on that, it will give you all the options available to subscribe to it and listen to it. I hope you take the opportunity to listen to the series. It's really quite wonderful. Bit of a departure for us. We hope to be doing more series like this, and we'd love to hear what you think about it. Thanks very much. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Middle Eastern Studies. I'm James Dorsey, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to James Sogby about his new book, the Tumultuous Decade, Arab Public Opinion, and the Upheavals of 2010 to 2019. James has an enormous experience in decades of polling in the Middle East. Jim, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, James. Jim, I wonder if we could start with you giving us a bit of an intellectual history of yourself, sort of how you got to this book, what the run-up run to it was. Well, I I, uh, I began polling uh, with my brother uh, back in uh, the late '90s. Um, he was the pollster. He did both polling in the Arab world, but of course, polling um, in the United States, which is what he was best known for. Um, and we polled for some media companies that I was associated with. I had a TV show there uh, for about 18 years, and then I, in the after 9/11. We got a media contract in the Middle East to poll on uh, Arab attitudes towards America. The question was, George Bush had said, they hate us for our values. And uh, we wanted to know, was that the case? And uh, that, that polling then became, for a while, an annual uh, piece that we did to trace that uh, development and opinion, leading to a book I wrote in 2010, published in 2010, called Air Voices, What They're Saying and Why It Matters, uh, which actually did very well. Uh, it was not just on the polling and on the attitudes. It was about the myths that Arabs have about Americans and uh, about how our polling sort of shattered those myths if you paid attention and listened to what people were actually saying. Um Going forward, my brother sold the company in in 2010, um, and uh, the new folks who bought it said no more Middle East polling. At that point, I had a contract. John said, I have a non-compete, can't do it. Uh, but 
you ought to just start your own. So I started Zogby Research Services, and we began then full time just polling in America. We don't in the Arab world. We don't poll in uh, the U.S. Uh, at all. We just poll in the Arab world. And so uh, there is an annual conference in uh, in the UAE called Surbaniyas, and it's really quite uh, um, an interesting event. It's it's all off the record, uh, as it ought to be, needs to be, because um, of the 110 or so guests, uh, a number of them are foreign ministers, uh, senior people in um, in think tanks uh, from Europe, the Arab world, uh, Asia, the U.S., uh, folks who are uh, in national security councils, similarly foreign policy establishment folks in, in all these same countries. And they've asked me to poll on a, a series of questions that are to be discussed at the forum um, in order to pro- provide some content on here's what public opinion is saying, what are policymakers saying. Uh, the book, The Tumultuous Decade, is the result of the 10 years, uh, the the second decade of the 21st century on the various topics that we've covered at the Surbanias forums, um, amplified a bit by some additional polling that I've done uh, for other clients uh, over the, the same period. Uh, we cover issues like the Iraq response to Iraq, the response to Arab Spring, uh, the response to the many conflicts from Syria to Yemen to uh, the continuing uh, uh, un- unraveling uh, of, of several countries, um, and uh, Iran, attitudes towards Iran, and we've been able to poll in Iran, uh, uh, polling uh, on in Turkey and about the regional attitudes towards Turkey, Israel-Palestine, of course, uh, and extremism. So a range of rather heady and critical topics um, and we've been able to trace the developments on all of those issues over the last uh, the last decade. And I call it the tumultuous decade because uh, the very first uh, conference I polled for in 2011, uh, what we what we found were that two events, one being the imminent U.S. withdrawal from Iraq, and the other being the imminent on. Uh, evolving Arab Spring were going to be two events that were going to shape that entire decade. The fallout from both um, were of critical importance to defining uh, the, the second decade of the of the century and the unraveling uh, of, of the, the old order of the Arab world that took place during that second, uh, second decade. And I would add, uh, the unraveling of the role of the United States as a uh, as a superpower in the region, um, uh, also. So th- that's what the book is about. That's how we got there, um, and um, and I thank you for giving me a chance to talk about it. It's a pleasure to have you in a fascinating subject and an absolutely fascinating decade. Before we get into a lot of the detail, uh, obviously. You know, you've done a decade of polling in the Middle East, but that includes countries in which freedom of expression, freedom of the media in varying degrees is suppressed. And so the obvious questions that arises is what is the value of polling in countries like that? Well, I, I, you know, I've done this now for enough years and we've seen the results and sort of 
done deep dives into the results and done follow-up polling in forms of uh, personal calls to people to get qualitative responses based on the, the surveys that they have uh, that they've uh, responded to. I'll tell you, we, we only do face-to-face polling. Uh, we don't poll in countries where we find that we're not going to be comfortable with results. For example, we didn't poll in Syria before the unraveling of the Arab Spring, didn't fall in Lib- poll in Libya um, under Gaddafi. Um, and yet, when, even though the countries that we talk about are not themselves democracies, what we have found is that the countries in which we do poll, there is a, uh, a, an interest on the part of the people in those countries to give us answers. They, they want to talk. And they want to tell us things. And they don't seem to be afraid to do it. Um, and the answers, just the answers to the questions alone <laughs> give you that indication. You know, when you're, when you're polling in uh, uh, Saudi Arabia and people say, well, it's not a free country. They're not going to tell you the truth. And almost by two to one, Saudis will tell us that the country's on the wrong track or that they are not confident that in the next five years their lives are going to be any better. Um, and that they're not com- comfortable now when they, you know, that old Reagan question, are you better off than you were? They also give us a negative answer there. Um, when we make a mistake in the poll, uh, as we did one year, and we left in, or we, we asked the question, uh, your attitude toward these various countries, favorable, unfavorable, or are they making a contribution to peace and stability in the region? And uh, when we ask about a country uh, that is also covered in the survey. When we get to that country, we leave the country out. So you don't ask Egyptians, is Egypt making a contribution to peace and stability in the region? We don't ask Saudis the same question. We don't ask Iranians the same question. When you ask that question, we made the mistake and left it in. And, uh, and Iranians will tell you, we don't make a contribution to peace and stability. Or Saudis will tell you, we don't make a contribution to peace and stability. And the ones who don't, well, it was 18% in Saudi said they didn't. The 18% largely came from the eastern province, which is where the Shia mm-hmm. community is. And they're not happy in many instances with what's going on in the region or in their own country. Um, and Egyptians will be split on the question. Um, and in Egypt, right before Tamarad, uh, the, the, the street revolt that toppled the Morsi regime and gave the military the opportunity to take over, we found 93% of the Egyptian people were favorable toward the military. Uh, we found the Muslim Brotherhood government only had a 26% favorable rating, but we found that 76% or so of Egyptians said um, we'd prefer national dialogue to a takeover. That was what they wanted. They wanted dialogue and reconciliation to, to, to make the change needed. Um, military took over. By September, uh, we polled again, and we found uh, people were not happy with the takeover. People, same 70-something percent, said that uh, they favored national reconciliation and dialogue as the way forward. And the favorable rating of the military had dropped about 10 points. Today, the favorable rating of the military is about 51%. The uh, Muslim Brotherhood government, still not uh, appreciated, wasn't viewed as, as a success, but the ratings of that government are about the same as the Morsi government, as the, the Sisi government. That's something the Egyptians will deny. No, it's not true. Your, your numbers are wrong. They loved our numbers 
before Tomarid, they don't love our numbers now. I call it shooting the messenger, you know. Um, so, look, in all these countries, we get numbers that, that tell us people are paying attention and people want to give us an answer. When Iranians say after the, uh, the JCPOA that, that what they wanted now was more freedom of expression, they wanted more protection of their right of free expression, they wanted the government to invest more money in uh, jobs and, and health care and education and less in foreign adventures – that told us something. And then when Trump was elected and he began attacking Iran and imposed sanctions and people came back and said, uh, we support our government and, uh, and we, we want to, to uh, uh, see our government do what it needs to do to protect our honor and integrity, etc. Uh, that's a logical response. Uh, people will oppose their government when they feel that they have a chance to make change when they feel that they're being attacked by an external source, one that is not favorably viewed, the United States, uh, then they'll come to defend their government. So in a sense, the Trump approach to Iran has been, uh, to be crude, ass backwards. That's not what people, that's not how you change a government. Um, And so I I think the numbers are right. I I mean, I, I get enough opportunity to look at them. And when we see questions that surprise us, we go back and re-poll and we do qualitative polling, uh, asking people questions. Why did you say that? Tell me a little bit more. And it, the results are really quite fascinating. It's, it's been an extraordinary adventure uh, doing this uh, over the years that we've done it. And we've learned uh, uh, so much. Um, and I'm, it never ceases to amaze me how you know, people will have the, 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 the courage to tell you the truth they want their voices to be heard, and we are in the very fortunate position of giving them the the megaphone to do it. Uh, it sounds no, it's an incredible opportunity. It strikes me that there's a dynamic here. The one on the one hand, which you so eloquently de- uh, described, which basically is people wanting an opportunity to express an opinion. The other side of that is that you. It really depends on trust, and the quest. My question is: How do you inspire that confidence? How do you create that trust? Well, we have field workers in all the countries. Uh, they're locals. Uh, they're part of the communities in which they're 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 surveying, um, and uh, and they do a, a hell of a good job. We we actually train them in advance. We uh, prepare them for the job. We, we test the polls uh, in the beginning, especially if it's going to be controversial, and most of these are. Uh, and they, come, they usually come back to us and say, you know, question six got a confused response, uh, or we're not finding people comfortable with the way you asked question eight. Option B uh, wasn't, uh, wasn't one that people uh, – felt they understood or felt comfortable, uh, you know, so we go through all those details. And by the time we're done, our, the, the, the rapport between us and our field workers and between the field workers and the respondents uh, is established. And it gives us an opportunity, I think, to feel like, you know, that the, we're, 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 you know, we're, we're opening a window. People are feeling comfortable letting their voices be heard. And, uh, and we're, we're, like I said, we're just at the, the, the recording. Uh, uh, we're the recording vehicle for them. 
Another aspect of this is that autocratic rulers are sensitive to public opinion, irrespective of their policies, and they often initiate polling of their own. Have you ever been in, a, in, the, uh, in the position where you could compare your polls with what they get in their polling? Um, not really, but I, I can tell you, uh, without getting into specific clients, but telling you the jobs that we've done, uh, we have done some absolutely fascinating polling for, um, for governments in the region. And the questions that we've polled on are satisfaction, for example, uh, when the, they were beginning to build the metro in Riyadh, uh, the Riyadh Development Authority, I'll tell you that client, asked us to poll on a quality of life issues and where um, where the metro was going to go and was it uh, uh, was it going to be helpful for people to get to work? Uh, they wanted to know about how people in different neighborhoods felt about the availability of public schooling, uh, about their health care services, uh, about uh, pollution, uh, about access to other government services. And uh, we ended up with a map of the city of Riyadh and, uh, and, you know, graded by satisfaction in all these different areas. We repeated the poll. Uh, we, we had an impact on, on some of the decisions that got made, I think. Uh, we also have polled on women in the workplace in, 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 in other Gulf countries um, and how people felt about – men in particular felt about women supervisors because there were – it's an emerging uh, – it's a phenomenon now that you're, you're getting many more educated women and many more educated women in leadership roles. And the question was, how, how, is, it, how is it working? And what needed to be done uh, to help men get over the hump of dealing with this issue? And we polled on child abuse. Uh, we found in one country some reports of child abuse. We were asked um, to do – you couldn't do a poll – so much, but what we did do was conduct surveys of um, uh, teachers, doctors, people in hospitals, police, cases uh, that they'd seen, how they responded, and uh, uh, and whether or not the existing legal structure was adequate. And what we found was that it wasn't. People uh, were telling us from the police to the uh, the courts to the teachers that they thought these were private family matters and that they shouldn't be reported to the authorities uh, and that it should be resolved in the family. Well, th that was unsatisfactory to the, the, the government that asked us to do it. And they issued a law that said, you better report these. It's a criminal offense if you don't report them. And I, so the poll made an impact there. So we've done, you know, we've done polling of, of a variety of sources and you're right. They want to know what people think. And if they're, if the questions that we're being asked to poll on are questions that we think are helpful to improving the quality of life, we'll do them. You have looked at at least a decade, if not longer, of public opinion across a region that has grown increasingly volatile, fractured, uh, mired in multiple conflicts and power struggles. If you look across that the polling over over the last decade, what changes and trends do you see? Well, as I said, Arab Voices was the first decade of my polling in the region from from nine eleven on. Uh, actually, we included some polling that we had done earlier than that. 
Uh, so this is the second decade of our, of our polling in the tumultuous decade. Um, and the changes are, um, I said the old order has collapsed, uh, and it, it has collapsed. And as the Bush administration, administration had, had uh, oh, let me say it again, as the Bush administration had projected, you know, I, I always say that the biggest lies of Iraq were not about weapons of mass destruction, but it was the, 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 the really dangerous nonsense that the Bush administration projected about the, the war. I, I remember, uh, and you'll remember, that they said, um, we'll be welcomed as liberators. <laughs> the war will mm-hmm. take three weeks. Uh, we'll be out of there in six months. It won't cost more than, than $2 billion, and then Iraqi oil will kick in, paying for the rest. And they... Uh, they also said that, uh, you know, we'll build a model democracy that will shine a beacon, was the, the language used, that will light up the whole Middle East and, and usher in a new, a new regional order. Well, it did usher in a new regional order of absolute chaos. And it wasn't the creative chaos that, uh, that, they, that the neocons projected. And it wasn't as the neocons projected an order in which the United States was established as the preeminent power. Remember, that was the, the, the project for a new American century said, if we uh, dealt a decisive blow to our enemies, it would make them all cower in our wake and we would become the, it would win us another century of world leadership. The opposite happened. We didn't get democracy in Iraq. We didn't shine a beacon. We Instead, we unleashed uh, Iran because getting rid of Saddam, who was a good guy to get rid of, uh, but without understanding the consequences meant that Iran was emboldened, unleashed in the region, and began to project itself first in Iraq, later in Syria. Uh, it f- firmly established its toehold in Lebanon um, and now is in, in Yemen, creating a back uh, a backlash from uh, Saudis and Emiratis, countries uh, afraid of Iran projecting its, its revolution uh, in the, in the region. And you have the, the part of the mess we have today at the same time, instead of Iraq establishing us as a dominant power, um, we became weakened, less respected and less able to project even constructive diplomacy than we were before, uh, before the, the, the Iraq war. I mean, I, you think back to Bush Baker and the, end of the Cold War and how seamlessly they were able to lead us through that and think of where we are today uh, with the chaos that has been unleashed and our inability. I mean, there was great hope with President Obama, but uh, that hope dissipated. Um, And it wasn't, as he says to um, uh, uh, Jeffrey Goldberg in The Atlantic, it wasn't that they the Arabs screwed up and let him down. It's that he didn't deliver on the promises of Cairo. Uh, It just, there wasn't an understanding of what needed to be done. And, or when he did understand, and I think he did in his second anniversary speech on Cairo, he understood what needed to be done, but there was no support from Congress or, uh, or the, the foreign policy establishment here about what needed to happen to, to, to move, the Middle East forward. The point right now is that we have a situation that's out of control, and that is always a dangerous phenomenon. Look, when Iran gained a toehold in in Baghdad, and we abandoned Baghdad to Iran, 
um, you then had the natural result of ISIS, uh, Al-Qaeda morphing into a sectarian Sunni movement to combat the sectarian movement, uh, the movements that were being supported by Iran and a government that was persecuting Sunnis at that point. I mean, all of the spill out, spillover of, um, of what happened in, uh, in Iraq were still bearing the consequences of that. And it's pretty disaster. Indeed. And in fact, your chapter on Iraq is a case study of how a lack of understanding of popular sentiment has contributed to misguided U.S. policies. Mm -hmm. Perhaps you can sort of walk us through how that was reflected in the polling over the years that you did in Iraq. And well, when we first started, well, we polled in Iraq, actually, going back. I remember, <laughs> I remember the first time we polled in Iraq was in October of 2003. And uh, what we found was that Iraqis felt that the Americans were abusing them. Uh, they were not protecting them. Uh, they wanted the Americans to leave. Uh, they were split on the question, but they still wanted them to leave. And uh, when we asked them what country they most wanted to be like, they actually said the UAE, um, which has a good reputation in the region. Um, and um, about a week or so after the poll was released, I um, uh, was watching MSNBC, or, I'm sorry, uh, NBC, uh, Meet the Press, and uh, Dick Cheney was on. And he was saying, very reputable poll done by Sogby, very reputable pollster. Um, polled in Iraq, they love us. They want us to stay, um, whatever. And he was going on. And I, so I wrote an article called Bend It Like Cheney. And I said, it's one thing to not pay attention to the intelligence when you go into a war. Um, it's another thing when you're in the mess and you're making a mess to not pay attention to what people are saying about the mess so that you can correct course. Um, but, but that whole inability to listen um, uh, to what the Iraqis were telling us and, and or to pretend that the few voices you were listening to knew it all, that the Ahmed Shalabis were the ones who actually got it all right um, is, um, uh, is what, what produced them. I mean, to, for Ahmed Shelby to say, oh, you'll go into Iraq and there'll be flowers in the street and people will give candy and you'll be greeted as liberators. I mean, he preyed on their their need for some sort of macho victory. We, we, we envisioned uh, the, the, you know, the allies marching into Paris uh, during World War II. Um, and it was anything but that. It was anything but that. So uh, by the time we got to 2010-11 and the Americans were thinking of leaving, we started polling again and we asked them, what do you think about the U.S. leaving? Um, and they both wanted the U.S. to leave, but at the same time, they were afraid of what would occur. And I, I wrote that it was a conflicted response. And I, I remember back then I was doing a TV show and I, I did a live dialogue between students in the States and um, students in Baghdad. And I remember one Iraqi woman said, we want you to leave. Of course we want you to leave, but not now. It was like almost in, it was almost like one, one breath, one sentence. Uh, and that sense of leave, but I'm nervous about it, uh, dominated the, the first poll. 
And when we asked them what they were most afraid of, they were afraid of sectarian violence. They were afraid of civil war. They were afraid of neighbors taking advantage, which translated to Iran. Um, and, uh, uh, and they were afraid of economic ruin and, and, uh, and they got all of it. They got all of it. Uh, and so in some ways, what we, what we saw them telling us, what we heard them telling us in 2011 is what unfolded over the, over the decade. And, uh, there've been, there, you know, there were some ups and downs, but, uh, the economy, Iran, sectarian conflict, um, all of those have, have marked the last decade for the poor, poor people of Iraq. You touched on it, uh, in, in your analysis of polling data from Iraq, as did Emma Sky, a former advisor to the U.S. commander in Iraq, uh, namely on, on issues of what it would take to unite and fix the structural problems of Iraqi politics and the economy, and particularly constitutional institutional reform. Was there more of a sense of what Iraqis felt about that in the polling? We didn't get into the weeds on that. Um, and that might be... Um, uh, somewhat beyond the kin of 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 the average uh, respondent, you know. I mean, I don't like to ask questions in polls. I see that all the time about, uh, uh, you know, you can ask public opinion how they're feeling, what they want, um, what they is the government doing a good job or not. But to say, um, how do you think we should handle the crisis in this or that? It, asking people something that's above their pay grade. Uh, and that gets them into the weeds in terms of very specific policy is not always the best way to conduct a poll. So, no, I haven't asked those questions. But what we have asked Iraqis are and does give us a measure of where they want to go is um, do they respect various institutions? And the answer is right now they don't. Uh, do they respect uh, do they have confidence in the ability of those institutions? Uh, and the answer is that they really don't. We also asked them about whether they want a divided country partitioned, whether they want a unified country uh, with a, a, a responsible government that's responsive to the, the, the needs of all the people. And they, that's what they want. And it's interesting that, that in the last poll in 2019, uh, the majority in all component groups, Sunni, Shia, and Kurds, said that's what they wanted. Um, and I think that that is instructive and people ought to pay attention to that, this notion of partitioning or uh, sectarianizing or, or uh, look, the U.S. did the Iraqis an enormous injustice when Paul Bremer decided to impose the Lebanon model on Iraq and portion government out by, by sect. Uh, that was, again, a Shelby uh, uh, desire as an Iranian agent who had the ear of the U.S. president. Um, and the result is that uh, it has proven disastrous for, for Iraq. Um, and people don't want that. They, they, want, uh, they want a non-sectarian um, and unified country and a government that is responsive to all the, the component groups in the country. And when we polled after the riots uh, that took place last year, we also found that even even among the Shia, a growing dissatisfaction with Iran's role in the country. No love lost for the United States. I mean, it's not a question of, oh, they love us and they don't like Iran. They don't want any of us at this point. 
Um, and uh, the government is in a bind. It's weak. I think they've got the they're, they've got the right intention, but the question is, can they rein in uh, the militias that have been funded, armed, trained, uh, and are responsive to Iran, not to Iraq? Um, and that's that's a big problem uh, for the government to deal with right now. And uh, and what the people were telling us, and actually, actually, they blamed the violence on those outside the government groups that brought, uh, that wanted to squash the violence because the violence was taking an anti-Iran turn. The protests, rather, were taking an anti-Iran turn. Sorry. No worries. A lot of that, of course, is also reflected in, in, in the protests and what protesters want. Related to that, what I'd like to do, if you don't mind, is um, juxtapose uh, some of what you've said in your in your book with a very recent poll that you did not conduct, but in which I thought that the uh, the the answers were were striking. You know, so in your book, you've really looked at the four case studies of the initial popular Arab revolts in Tunisia and Egypt and Syria and in Yemen. And all of those, with the exception of Tunisia, countries that have ended up with autocratic regimes, civil wars, foreign intervention, and a mood that has shifted towards pessimism and a loss of hope. There was a recent uh, poll, that uh, parts of which were just published, in which um, Saudis were asked whether it was a good thing that they did not have the right to stage those kind of demonstrations. And the Saudi response was surprising, with half of those of the respondents agreeing to that proposition, but half not agreeing, implicitly saying that they wanted the right to to protest and would empathize with protests. And so I'm sort of curious what your, you know, based on your own results of of of, uh, of polling in the Gulf, how that strikes you. Never, uh, never asked those questions, but those answers don't surprise me um, at all. Um, now the question is, how does this continue to unfold? I remember, um, I forget when it was we polled on, in one of the Gulf countries, uh, on the, uh, they had an appointed, uh, parliament, not an elected, but an appointed parliament. And we, we asked them. Short council. Yeah, it was something of that sort. It wasn't Saudi Arabia, though. But the question was, um, do you favor this body being an elected body? And um, uh, Kuwait at the time was <laughs> was unraveling. Its parliament was in you know chaos, and and uh, people said no, they didn't want it that way, <laughs> and uh, they were thinking of the Kuwait model. Um, and I think that. Um, uh, it, it it will depend upon whether or not the the the, the demonstrations um, are able to not just achieve constructive change, but show a path forward to creating that change, and uh, as to whether or not the public continues to believe that that that's actually a good thing. Um, uh, right now, the, the the of all the Arab Spring countries, the only one that is viewed f- still favorably is Tunisia. 
Um, it is by any measure not a success. But in the Arab, uh, in Arab public opinion, it's viewed as one that actually it seems to be um, uh, seems to be stabilizing and creating some change. I, it, among Tunisians, that's not the case. But in the perception in the Arab world is that Egypt is viewed as a disaster, um, etc. And so I, I think that with all of these experiments in change, whether it's the uh, the, the demonstrations leading to to change or uh, or the kind of uh, takeovers that occurred in in Egypt uh, and the military's role in in Sudan, uh, etc. Et what's going to determine wh- whether or not the public in in different countries say, you know, that's something we ought to maybe try. Uh, it's going to depend upon uh, whether or not these other experiments produce favorable results because right now people are looking and saying i'm not thinking this is working so hot uh and i think that that's going to be an issue that as we move forward we haven't polled on it but i that would be my guess thank you (coughs) sorry about that um you conclude in the book that the polling in palestine and israel indicates that blind spots um uh, which policymakers fail to recognize, and then that misinforms the decision-making. But it seems to me that it also suggests that ability to recognize those blind spots and what public opinion tells leaders is the political will to take it into account. And that's something Middle Eastern leaders only do to the degree it suits their purpose or they're forced to. No, so I, I mean, it was, is, would that be a would that be a correct conclusion? I, I you know, I, I. We have asked public opinion whether or not they feel that their own government or that Arab governments have contributed to peace. Um, you get a lukewarm response. Um, I don't think that the view is that Arab governments have done enough. Uh, I think that in in a rather shocking result we got in 19 and again this year and one that we've done, but have not yet fully uh, released. Um, we found that um, the idea of normalization without peace uh, was viewed favorably. Uh, I had not seen that before and I was initially uh, shocked so we went in 19, after we got that result, we went and repolled and got the same results. And then we did qualitative follow-ups and said, why do you say that? And in the 2020 poll, we actually did the follow-up in the poll itself. And what we found was um, a, a number of things. One was uh, it's not going anywhere. The Arab Peace Initiative was thrown out there. Nothing happened. Something's, something's got to give. Maybe if, uh, if some countries normalize, it might give Arabs leverage to move Israel because nothing else seems to. They were frustrated with the killing and the suffering and the fact that it wasn't going anywhere and wanted to see an end. They thought there might be economic benefits for the whole region from normalization. And they also, um, they hold the U.S. and Israel responsible for you know, the the suffering of Palestinians, but they also felt that the Palestinian leadership um, 
they were tired of it. And they, they were saying things in the qualitative responses like, they're not providing any leadership or direction for their people. Something else has to happen. So um, uh, I, I think that in answer to your question, um, the public feels the issue still. Palestine is still an, an emotional issue. But in, in part, it's not on the front burner because – the Palestinians haven't put it on the front burner and it sort of wears, it's like a low, um, it's like a, a sort of a deep throbbing pain that doesn't go away, but you can kind of forget about it because there are other things on the surface that are, are bothering you more. And when asked about Palestine, then, uh, what they're telling us is more has got to be done and maybe something new has to be tried. I'm, I, I know that there's a view here in the States on, uh, among people on the left and a view among some in the intellectual world that, uh, um, uh, oh my goodness, uh, um, UAE normalized, uh, this is flies in the face of the overwhelming view in the Arab world. That's not true. That's not true. Um, and um, um, uh, the, I, people are looking at it as an interesting experiment. Let's see if it, if it goes anywhere. Let's see if anything changes. Let's see if they can help move the, the ball forward, um, and, and we'll see what, what comes of it. I, I noted that conclusion in your book, and another way probably of formulating that is that decades of putting on the table an offer for normalization in exchange for peace hasn't produced anything. Uh, the question, of course, is whether from your, from your polling and from your sense of what public sentiment is, what happens if normalization doesn't produce produces economic benefits, people to people interaction, but does not produce a change in Israeli policy yeah. or a Palestinian leadership that ultimately is capable of negotiating a solution? If there's an Israeli government, well, that I, I don't think that the, that the burden is on the Palestinian leadership anyway. Uh, they're they are they've become at best a dependency. Uh, they need. Uh, uh, international donors to to be able to maintain the bureaucracy that they also need because Israel denied Palestinians the opportunity to develop an, an independent economy. They can't import or export uh, except under rather onerous conditions. And therefore, the economy never was able to grow in, as an independent economy. The two largest sources of wealth and employment in Palestine are uh, day labor jobs in Israel or the settlements? That's over a hundred thousand um, people, and uh, and or jobs in the PA's bureaucracy. Um, both are needed, or else there is absolute economic ruin. That's not an independent economy. That's a dependency. Uh, it is an apartheid state right now, with the Palestinians managing um, their Bantustan. Um, and, and people in the Arab world know that and they feel that. Um, but what they want is something to inspire them. There's, where's the vision right now? Where's the, the sense of uh, this is the direction that we need to go in? And, and I think that that may come from, you know, Palestinian uh, civil society. Um, I would bet you that attitudes right now, which are lukewarm, uh, would become red hot 
if there were uh, if there were a dynamic unleashed in the West Bank uh, that would um, uh, inspire people throughout the throughout the region. They want to be inspired on this question, but right now they're not. And I like again, I'm not going to see the Palestinian Authority. Um, as doing that, they're they're the managers right now of the occupation. They're helping uh, to, and they and I don't fault them in the sense that um, the the responsibility of having a hundred plus thousand people on the payroll uh, just to keep them going. Um, you you can't let your people starve, but the price you pay in order to not have your people starve is that you have to do some things that make you not a revolutionary movement, not a transformative movement, uh, not a movement that can seek justice because there are constraints. Uh, you can go just so far. So um, I, I think the Arab world would be inspired by, by a movement for change in Palestine. It's not going to happen from the authority, certainly not going to happen from Hamas. Um, and uh, and so civil society is 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 where action can occur. Now, can the UAE or other Gulf states or any other states that make peace with Israel or normalize with Israel put additional conditions on Israel? Okay, you don't annex. Maybe you don't build settlements. Okay, maybe you provide justice and equality for Palestinians in the occupied territory. I mean, who knows what conditions can be put? But but you know, I think Israel needs the the relationship more than the arabs need the relationship and um and we'll see where this goes but i think um uh, where it's going right now is nowhere right um and what what we got from the polls was that maybe something new will work uh, that uh if if everything were going along swimmingly well and palestinians were on a track to independence tomorrow i'd say for god's sake guys don't screw it up keep the heat on. Um, but it's not happening and they need a dynamic and they need something to change. Uh, this might not be the thing that will do it, but I think Palestinian civil society um, needs to, to, to do something itself. Otherwise, look, it, the bottom line is I'm not, I'm not totally pessimistic here because uh, despite the fact that I, I know the suffering that's involved and the hardship that's been created. Um, I think that Israel has successfully dug a hole so deep that a one state solution is where uh, this is going to end up. Um, and that being the case, uh, we're, we're just counting down the, the, the years till we get there. It's going to be a while. It's going to be a long time. It's going to be unbearable in, in many ways, but if you're not going to get rid of seven, 650 plus thousand settlers, uh, if you're not going to end your control over land, airspace, water resources, um, if you're not going to do all that, then y- you basically have a captive people living under your rule. And uh, it may work in the short term, but in the long term, they're going to want rights. And as the Arab Palestinian Arab citizen minority in Israel grows in influence, uh, they're going to become real advocates for that kind of change. And I can see uh, a democracy movement spreading and involving even people in the Jewish sector saying, uh, we need one state for both peoples. And um, 
And Israel's going to say, how did we get here? And I'm going to tell them, I'll tell you how you got there uh, by building settlements and refusing to evacuate them and by not having two states when you could have had two states uh, back in the 90s. Uh, they dug this hole and that's where we're going. Indeed. If we, if, if you don't mind, let us jump to Iran for a second. And I think it would be, would it be correct to sort of conclude from the, your polling results in Iran that one measure of the failure of the Trump administration's expectation that maximum pressure would undermine public confidence in institutions is, <coughs> sorry, uh, is the fact that, uh, in fact, trust in institutions like law enforcement, like the military, the religious establishment, media, parliament, are ranging from the high 50s to the mid-60s in terms of percentages, even if demands for reform persist. Look, there are two lessons I've learned um, uh, over the years in, in, in polling. Uh, one is... Uh, don't mess with what people don't want you to mess with. Uh, I remember, you know, back in the 90s when I first started working with Vice President Gore on Builders for Peace and I got to deal with the AID people uh, and they had all these democracy programs. And then in Bush, it got even bigger. Uh, you know, a lot of focus on we're going to make everybody dem Democrats. And we did polling across the region. We asked people what their priorities were. And guess what? Priorities were uh, jobs, education and health care. Um, sound familiar? It's like everybody all over the world. And when we asked them questions about democracy or women's rights, they were like downscale. They weren't like top priority issues at all. They wanted jobs. They wanted to know that they were going to be taken care of in their old age. They wanted health care. They wanted their kids to have uh, education to get jobs for the future, etc. Um, and when we asked them a follow-up question, which is, what kind of help do you want from the United States? Um, it was jobs, education, and healthcare. They wanted uh, investment to create jobs. They wanted uh, American technology to help them with their education system and their tech and and uh, and their healthcare system. Um, and that's what they wanted. They did not want um, uh, the Undersecretary for Public Diplomacy to go over there and give them a lecture about women driving. Um, some people may have liked it, but that's not that wasn't our role. Uh, the first president to have gotten that was Obama when he said, we can't direct the Arab Spring. We can't determine its outcome. We can only help them create jobs and help them improve education and health care. Um, and I said back then, I said, inviting uh, uh, for America to want to go over and project uh, democracy and our way of doing democracy, which, as we find, is not all that that hot anyway. Um, on them is the same as if we're trying to tackle healthcare, saying, let's invite the Swedes over to show us how they do it. Uh, people don't like other countries meddling in their affairs. That's the bottom line. Even if their affairs are screwed up, inviting another country to come in and do it is not exactly where you want to be and how you want to be seen, especially when your favorable numbers are pretty low across the region. Second point is... Um, Pay attention to how you're viewed and whether or not you're making a contribution or not, and then back off if you're not. What we have found in Iran, for example, is that people do want reform and they do want change. 
but they want to be the agent of reform and change, and they resent the United States being the bully uh, that demands it. It, it, people will, you know, people won't like a president, but when the country is under attack as they, in 2001, uh, after, after uh, the terrorist attack on, on New York, um, people mobilized, they mobilized around the president. And, uh, you know, a foreign leader who would attack George Bush, despite the fact that, if you recall, uh, many of us viewed him as an illegitimate president who hadn't gotten elected at all except for a vote by the Supreme Court. Um, but damn it, he was our president and that was our flag and you're not going to do it. You know, we mobilized around the president. Um, and the Iranians are capable of doing the same thing. So we had the regime in a better place when the JCPOA was in effect, despite the fact that I thought it was a in some ways, a weak agreement because it didn't deal with all the issues that it should have dealt with. It should have dealt with Iran's regional role. I mean, we unleashed Iran on the region. We should have addressed it, not just the nuclear bomb they didn't have, but the really abhorrent behaviors that they were manifesting by in- interfering in other countries' roles. But in any case, the JCPOA got done, and Iranian opinion toward their own government turned south. The minute we suspended the and imposed sanctions and began attacking the government, people mobilized around their own regime. Now, the regime is doing a crappy job, but it's under attack, and so people will tend to, to gravitate toward it. It's, it's a logical response. Those are two things I think you need to pay attention to, um, is what people want and how what you do impacts the, their behavior and maybe learn some lessons and back off when it's not working. And I think right now, back off, it's not working. Absolutely. If I can dig just a a little bit deeper on that, uh, what did you see in changing attitudes on the one hand towards the United States, but on the other hand, towards Americans as, as, as individuals, as, as as people in terms, you know, once you had the, the U S withdrawal from the nuclear agreement, and the reimposition of the sanctions. We have not had a client uh, media company that's wanted a poll on those things now for a number of years. But I can tell you um, that when we were polling on these issues, um, we found that in the early years, 2001, 2002, up to the Iraq war, it it was interesting that people would say to us, um, we love American values. We love democracy and freedom. We love your educational system. We love your people. We love your media and your, I mean, they, all, all the networks there buy American TV shows and reality shows and, and franchised uh, quiz shows and all that stuff. They love all that stuff. They don't like our policy. And, um, and, and I remember doing qualitative follow-ups and one guy said, look, he said, I love your country, but I know your country doesn't love me. I feel like a jilted lover. Um, and that, that was the, maybe the attitude. We respect your values, but you don't respect us and apply your values to us. And so the judgment of how they viewed us was not based on the values we project, but how we treat them. And the result is negative, negative attitudes. Um, I, I think that as it applies to Iran, there's always been this sort of naive 
uh, oh, the, the Iranians like us much better than the Arabs do. That's nonsense. Um, attitudes are in the toilet everywhere. The danger is that, uh, that the longer the attitudes remain negative, the more the impact that has on the soft power aspects of the relationship. Uh, the last time I think we polled on how they feel about us was in uh, 2008 or nine. And what we found was that their attitudes toward the American people had dropped. Um, and uh, it was 2008. It was before the election. Um, and, and I said, I, I, you know, I'd written an earlier article about they, they love us. They don't love our values. Uh, they, don't, they don't love our policy. They love our values. They don't love our policy. And I wrote the follow-up article uh, saying they don't love us anymore either. And it was that, that you know, when, when, when we appear to tolerate, uh, re-elect George Bush and appear to tolerate all this behavior uh, from administrations, it doesn't play well around the world. Um, and so there was a time when I, I used to say that uh, – uh, American soft power was not the the broadcast board of governance and the you know the radio free whatever. It was really our people and our uh, and our, our television shows. I mean, they love our television shows not because they're entertaining, but there's a little bit of America. When somebody in Saudi Arabia goes to Starbucks, it's not because the coffee's better. It's because they want a piece of America. When they bring their family to McDonald's. It's not because the food is better than they would get in their own home, but they want to do an American thing. We're still, there's a romantic attitude toward America. And that exists in, in other countries in, in, in the region. The problem is that the longer the negative policies continue, and it, it appears that we're at least tolerating those negative policies, uh, the more damage that gets done to those soft power manifestations of, of America. And that worries me. Um, right now, people aren't throwing stones at uh, Kentucky Fried Chicken uh, or, um, you know, or McDonald's, but that, that might occur. And that would, be a, that would be very worrisome, and I think it would be, it would be tragic. Yep, another four years of Trump may do that. Uh Another fascinating aspect of your polling is changing attitudes towards um, religiosity as well as political Islam. And you spoke a little bit before about the Muslim Brotherhood, but maybe you can uh, detail a little bit more what those changing attitudes are. Um, I think that the phenomenon of the politicization of religion and the weaponization of religion um, are, are new to this century in the region. Muslim Brotherhood existed before. Uh, the Wahhabi movement in Saudi Arabia existed before. Um, and, uh, and the Iranian Revolution certainly existed before this century. But they took, all of them took on a new hue, uh, this issue, um, with uh, both the, the Arab Spring, the Iraq War, the Arab Spring, and... Uh, um, and I, I think that they've been matters of, 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 of real concern. Uh, clearly in, in Egypt, uh, there was a sense that 
the, the Brotherhood experiment failed. Um, with Hamas, it was the, the same thing. Uh, Ananda was rejected in, in Tunisia. Um, and uh, Turkey is viewed as using the quote-unquote caliphate to reassert itself, and the Iranian revolution is deemed uh, a, a threat because it wants to project uh, its, its, its sectarian revolution across the region. Um, and those issues, and ISIS, of course, um, was, uh, again, a, a mortal threat. Uh, in the beginning, there was a, 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 a bit of maybe of tolerance for it, um, for th- this use of, of, of weaponizing religion. It was anti-Western, and that was, you know, kind of seen as maybe okay because the devil was fighting another devil, and we'll, you know, we'll pick our sides here. I, I remember one rather interesting uh, turning point occurred in uh, 2008, 9, 10, 11, uh, just on the issue of Iran. Uh, we uh, we polled attitudes towards Iran. In 2006, we did a BBC one. Um, and we found uh, that people's attitude toward Iran were really high. Uh, Israel had done real damage in Lebanon. Uh, you know, going, it wasn't just a war with Hezbollah, but it was a war to demolish the, the infrastructure of Lebanon. And they took a huge toll. Um, at the end of that war, uh, Iran's favorable ratings across the region were like in the 80% range. It was just stunning. And uh, we, we asked one question that was maybe a little bit, um, uh, I don't know what the word would be, maybe a little weird uh, to some, but, but it was an interesting tell. Uh, we asked, uh, name three leaders not from your own country that you most respect. Uh, we thought it would give us an idea of what people were thinking. In Saudi Arabia, the three leaders, not from their country, that they most respected, number one was Nasrallah, number two was Bashar al-Assad, and number three was Ahmadinejad in Iran. In a Sunni country, the three leaders they most respected were three non-Sunnis. And that had to do with the fact that their anger at the U.S. in Iraq and with uh, Israel in Lebanon was so great that it drove the favorables of everybody else up. Uh, Flash forward. Uh, In 2008, Hezbollah used its weapons against the Lebanese people to assert its control in the country. Um, Then the Arab Spring in Syria and the Bashar al-Assad regime became totally brutal, and Iran was backing both Today, Iran's favorable ratings in the region are down significantly everywhere. Um, and in, even in Lebanon and in Iraq, you have numbers dropping rather precipitously because of their behavior. The same can be said for uh, the Brotherhood after the failure in Egypt and the failure of Hamas. Um, and the same can be said for ISIS uh, after its behavior. Um, when it was initially viewed as striking out against the enemy, it was one thing, but when it began striking out against its own people, then it was some, a horse of a very different color. And so the weaponization of religion is viewed rather negatively across the region. 
And the failure of religion and politics, the politicization of religion is also viewed, uh, I, I think it, 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 it's viewed um, rather soberly. Um, th- these are still religious people. Um, I wouldn't overestimate or, you know, some people might take issue with me about the amount of religiosity. I mean, I, I think that, um, you know, the, the, the myth in the West is that um, Arabs w- go to bed at night, hate in America, wake up in the morning, hate in Israel and spend their day in the mosque or watching Al Jazeera fueling their hatred. Um, when you poll, you find out that they go to bed at night worried about their health and their parents getting sick and they wake up in the morning thinking about their kids and their job. And when they watch TV, uh, they largely watch entertainment shows because they want to be entertained. Um, and that's what they tell us and that's what they do. Um, but, but that aside, I think the issue here is, um, uh, is, is, is one that, that we have to pay attention to is that they, they they have respect for religion. They don't want to see it dominating how they do their daily lives. And that's true in countries that are themselves headed by religious governments. They say, no, I mean, when, you know, when Crown Prince Mohammed says we want to secularize, uh, you know, reduce the role of the religious police, he's got a base of support, a very strong base of support for that in Saudi Arabia. Um, when... Um, when the UAE is viewed as as one of the most favorable ratings of any country across the region, it's because it's viewed as a place that is tolerant and and allows for religious diversity. Um, and that's the, these are values that people uh, maintain, and uh, um, and I think that that's important. Uh, it's important to recognize. Jim, we could go on for another hour. But unfortunately, we're running up against the clock. Before I let you go, where do you go from here? What's your next project? Uh, the next project is to continue polling every year and see where it goes <laughs> and see if another book comes up at the end of the decade. I, I also have some other writing projects myself. Um, one is uh, after uh, doing this work for 74 years, people keep telling me, you got to write your stories down. Some of them are in Arab voices and it was fun to write them. But, uh, but you know, from the, the first time I went to Palestinian refugee camps in the seventies to do my dissertation research and the work I did with vice president Gore and the times I traveled to the West bank and what I saw in the West bank in Gaza and Jerusalem, um, and Israel. And, friends I've made and people I've known across the Arab world from the Gulf, Egypt, Lebanon, going through the civil war, knowing Rafiq Hariri, um, mourning his loss, uh, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, there's lots of stories to tell as well as my work with Reverend Jackson here in the States um, and my work with Bernie and all the other things I've done. I mean, I've, I've I've been blessed. I had a, a, a marvelous, marvelous wife, uh, blessed with five extraordinary children. Um, and, um, and I've been given opportunities that, um, you know, the, the son of a Lebanese immigrant grocer uh, never would have imagined possible uh, years ago uh, to, to, to live. I've, I've had extraordinary opportunities and I, and I don't ever want to uh, uh, forget that. And I'd like to memorialize it in a, in a book, allowing me to tell the stories at the same time i've got um 
collection of letters that I inherited from my mom, uh, written to her by two uncles, both of whom were in World War II, um, and followed each other by three weeks from England to France into Germany uh, on VE Day. They were in Germany. They were both in the Battle of the Bulge. And um, the stories are quite telling. What comes through in the letter are two very distinct personalities, but but two distinct personalities seeing many of the same things. And I've been wanting to write a book about that. So I've got lots of projects ahead of me, but I also have daily work, damn it. I mean, I got uh, we, we got an election coming up that is of critical importance, not just to my community and my country, but it's important, I think, to the world. And I'm going to be pouring my heart and soul into that. Um, um, I am, you know, mourning the loss of my wife in, in March, but I know she wanted me to work on this, on this presidential race and I'm doing it. Um, wanted me to keep the house, um, going and as a place for my children and grandchildren to keep coming to, and I'm doing it. And she respected the work I did and, and was herself a fierce, fierce advocate for passion and justice for people. And I, I'm doing that too. So I'm, I'm just chugging along. St. Francis one time was asked by um, a disciple, how do I love God? And Francis said, by loving him. And the disciple said, well, how, how do I do that? And Francis said, by loving him. And, you know, how do you live your life? I live in it. Um, how do you do what you're doing? You just keep doing it. And, uh, that, that's about all it is. It, it could be like Sisyphus, right? It could be uh, 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 that you're um, uh, rolling the stone up and it's just going to keep rolling back down. But but hey, as long as that stone's on the ground, I got to keep rolling because these issues don't go away. And the demands that they impose on us, if you see them in front of you, you got you to gotta do them. So I'll just keep doing what I'm doing until I can't do it anymore. And I'm just thankful that I still have within me to keep doing it. Jim, I'm very sorry to hear about your wife. Oh, thank you. Um, you. But having known you for decades, having followed you for decades, a memoir would indeed be a fascinating book to to read, as would a family history. Thank you very much for having been on the show. I really enjoyed it and wish you all the best. Thank you, James. Bye-bye.